Morning, everyone. Great to be here. Happy New Year's Eve to you all. Please uh, keep that uh, passage open before you. And um, I was just looking at the uh, background. Look at that artwork. Isn't that amazing for the summer series coming? That's fantastic. Um, Let's pray as we get into uh, Revelation chapter 3. Oh, Father, we thank you again for the year that we've just had, uh, for all the things that you've taught us, uh, for all the ways that you've grown us, for your word and prayer which sustain us, for the fellowship and love of this family that you've provided for us. And Lord, as we enter this new year, please uh, give us clarity and purpose and uh, please equip us now further in this regard. And uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A number of years ago now, I read a book uh, called Hot Tub Christianity. We're Aussies, so we'd call it Spa Christianity, Hot Tub Christianity. But uh, weird title, but it was written by a guy called J.I. Packer, and I think he's great. So I gave it a good old read. And it was good. It was really awesome. Um, Hot Tub Christianity... The title is there because what it suggests is that a whole bunch of Christians about the place are living a version of Christianity that's like relaxing in a spa. Chilled, relaxed, warm, doing it easy, drink in the hand, no worries. But Packer says, that's not Christianity. A warm, relaxed, no worries, doing it easy, chilling type Christianity is not Christianity at all, says Packer. Now some Christians might push back on this idea and say, come on Packer. Stop being so serious. Stop being so negative. Christianity is meant to be about being inspired and having Christian friends that you can spend life with and having God make your life better so that it's more enjoyable and blessed. And Christian leaders, well, that's their job. Their job is to do the inspiring, is to help us make friends with each other, is to help us have God make our lives better so that they're more enjoyable and blessed. Now, I love a good spa. Do you love a good spa? Spas are tops. I'd love to be in it. No. But the letter to the church in Sardis, in the book of Revelation, just doesn't sound like spa Christianity to me. Does it to you? It shouts to us, take your Christian life seriously. To give you a real contrast to a spa Christianity view of Christian life, I want to tell you a little story. Now, it's a made-up story. It's a, it's a fictional story, but it's historical fiction, you know, based on true events. Whenever a movie starts and says, based on true events, my wife is, ooh, this is going to be good. Are you one of those people? Ooh. But, well, this is based on true events. Um, and, and you're the main character. Now, if you're a lady, you have to pretend you're a man, but you're the main character, and it takes place in the ancient city of Sardis. Here we go. Let's see if we can do this. It had been late when sleep finally came to you. You'd been thinking about your farm, your wife, your two girls, your young son. Thinking about days without war and longing for a time in the future where you'd again farm your land and raise your family in peace. The war with the Persians must be won or Sardis would come under Persian rule. There'd been battles outside the city but now Sardis itself had been besieged. And so you with the rest of the men of the surrounding regions and city had been conscripted into the army. And so you spend your days and nights away from your family doing the work of a soldier within the besieged city of Sardis. As you drifted off to sleep, you'd sunk into dreams of family and happy times, memories, a dream world that was safe and warm. Trumpets and shouting shatter your dreams in the early hours of the morning, drawing you to full wakefulness immediately. It's dark, probably an hour before dawn. Trumpets are blaring, people are screaming, the sounds of battle can be heard. Close, close, not outside the city walls but within the city itself. How could this be? 
Others in your tent are rising, confused, dressing, arming themselves. What's happening? You yell to no one in particular as you rush to buckle on your scant armour. The Persians, they're over the walls. They're in the city. The gates are opened, responds the commander responsible for your troop. But how? They came up the wall. No, you think. No, that's impossible. You know the wall the commander refers to. It's a sheer cliff face, almost perpendicular, unclimbable. How had they made it up the wall? It was the one place that felt totally impenetrable. What happened to the watch and the wall? Didn't anyone see them, you ask? We didn't post a watch. No watch. We didn't think we needed a watch on the wall. By now, you're ready. You push with others towards the flap of the tent, coming out into the cool night air. You see the city spread out before you. Fires roar in every direction, consuming large portions of the city. Bands of soldiers from Sardis clash with far larger numbers of Persians, well-organised, well-commanded, well-prepared, not woken from sleep just moments before. You know in that first instant as you emerge from the tent that the city is lost, and you will almost certainly be lost with it. You raise your sword scream a battle cry in desperation and charge with a band of others into a line of Persians. The last thought as you rush towards your death is, no watch. Now, that's quite a contrast to a chilling in the spa type Christianity, isn't it? A serious story about battles and war and failing to sound the alarm and so being destroyed. And if someone to suggest to you that this might be more the tone of the Christian life, you might think, hang on, that's pretty alarmist. Chill out, Graham calm down. See, what is to be the tone of the Christian life and ministry? More like we're chilling in a spa together or more like we're at war and need to keep watch so the enemy doesn't overtake us? Well, one sounds much nicer and much more fun, but which is true. Well, the story I told you is historical fiction. I I took a fair bit of poetic license, but it's actually from the history of Sardis. Sardis was a city built in an elevated position, and on one side there was a nearly perpendicular wall. To get into the city on that side, an enemy would have to scale this almost unscalable cliff. And so on that side of the city, the city felt impenetrable. It felt like you wouldn't need to post a watch. Uh, If you did have a watch, they wouldn't need to look too closely. But twice in the history of the city of Sardis, the city was taken because someone on watch failed to notice the enemy scaling the wall. In 549 BC, when the Persians, led by King Cyrus, sent people up the wall, the city was lost. Apparently, the Persians were watching, and a citizen of Sardis, a soldier, dropped their helmet down the wall, scaled down the wall, picked it up, scaled back up, and the Persians were watching and thought, that's the way up. Climbed over the wall, opened the gates, the city was lost. Happened again 216 BC when the Seleucids, led by Antiochus the Great, laid siege to the city and a bloke by the name of Logarus uh, led 15 men up a vulnerable point in the wall, opened the gates and again the city was taken. The letter to the church in Sardis in Revelation has this history in its background and it's a letter saying what happened physically to the city of Sardis can happen to you as a church. No watch, the fall of a city. No watch, the fall of a church. No watch, the fall of a Christian. And so the big thrust of this little letter is, keep watch, be vigilant, have a holy seriousness about your Christian life. The letter splits into three big parts, rebuke, warning, encouragement. And each part sounds the alarm. A heavy rebuke, clang, clang, clang. 
A serious warning, clang, clang, clang. And even to some extent, the encouragement has a seriousness about it. Clang, clang, clang. The first alarm, a heavy rebuke. Look with me at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Right from the very beginning of the letter, Jesus speaks in the strongest of possible words, a very heavy rebuke. And it's interesting to notice that this little letter breaks the pattern of most of the other little letters in the book of Revelation. In chapters 2, 3, there's seven letters, and most of them begin with praise before getting to rebuke or warning. Not here. Straight to rebuke. Jesus has very little good to say about the church in Sardis. This is one of the most severe rebukes to any of the seven churches, perhaps with the exception of Laodicea. Uh, In verse 4, you can see that there is a small group who are exempt from Jesus' rebuke to the church in Sardis, but only a small group. The letter is a strong warning to a church that had largely become complacent, that had been chilling in the spa too long. And the warning, it says, comes from Jesus who holds in his hand the seven spirits of God, which could be translated the sevenfold spirit of God, the fullness of the spirit of God, and who also holds in his hand the seven stars of the seven churches, which in chapter 1, the stars represent the angels or messengers of the seven churches, which could be angelic beings or it could be the leaders of those churches. But either way, the picture is clear. Jesus holds in his hand the fullness of the spirit by which he ministers to the churches through his messengers, whether angelic or human. Do you see? Jesus holds in his hand the very life of this church to protect, to destroy, to keep safe, to cast down. And this mighty Jesus with this this power of protection or destruction over the church says, I know your deeds. Now I find that terrifying. I know your deeds. There are no secrets from the Lord Jesus. He knows us. He knows all that we've done. He knows the thoughts of our hearts. He knows the very motives from deep inside. You can hide your sin from every other person, but not the Lord. The Lord knows. What Jesus knows about us uh, is absolute. And what Jesus knows about this church is not good. He says, you've got a reputation for being alive, but I know you. You're dead. The flaming eyes of the glorified Jesus pierce through externals and appearances to the things as they truly are. And Sardis, that has this great reputation for being alive, according to Jesus, is spiritually dead. Imagine. Imagine you're a member of the church of Sardis. And one day a messenger arrives and says, we have a little letter from the Apostle John. He has been given a vision from the Lord Jesus himself and, and the Lord Jesus has addressed your, our church the church in Sardis. Jesus speaking directly to you. Imagine that. We had a letter directly from the Lord Jesus speaking about us at EV Church. And so you gather together as a church and someone gets up to read this letter from the Lord Jesus to you. You're excited. What is Jesus going to say to you? And some of the very first words that you hear come out of his mouth are, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Can you imagine that? Everyone on the outside looks at your church and says things like, what a great church. Aren't they doing well? Do you you know how big that church is? 
They really love Jesus at church. Man, I wish our church could be more like that church. And yet the piercing eyes of Jesus see to the very heart of things and he says, you're dead. And it doesn't matter one bit what other people think about us or think about our church if Jesus says you're dead. The believers at Sardis had established a name for themselves amongst the community, a name for themselves amongst the the wider Christian community, a reputation that they were living, connected to God, alive and vibrant as a church, but in God's sight, dead. Can you imagine that? If we had a reputation for being connected to Christ, living his way, honouring him, but in reality, dead. The life of Jesus not really flowing through our veins, not really living in honour and obedience to him, dead. Summer, I love summer fruit. Cherries. Cherries at the top, in my opinion. But mango, close second. Mango, close second. And, and you know that experience when you've had a mango, it's sitting there uh, on, on the table in the bowl, just ripening, because you want to just get it at that perfect ripe moment where it's just ripe, still a bit tart, but you've been looking at it for days and you're looking forward to eating it and it keeps calling out to you, eat me, eat me, sweet nectar of heaven. And it looks juicy, tasty, sweet, a bit tart, Perfect. And you get to that moment, you peel back the skin and rot, stink. Imagine if you could peel back people's skin, metaphorically. Imagine if you could peel back people's skin and see underneath reality, spiritual life, health, vibrance, or rot, death, decay. Imagine if you could peel back a church's skin. What would you see underneath? This is a challenge for churches. This is a challenge for us as individuals. What would people see if they peeled my skin off, (laughs) metaphorically? Health, life, vibrance, decay, death, or or a mixed bag, spotty, rotty. I don't want to be a spotty, rotty. But how would you know if you or your church were dead? Well, verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I've found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. The deeds that God requires of us as a response to the salvation that we have received in Jesus have been left unfinished. The good works that Jesus requires of us have been shriveled. Their service of God's people has dwindled and atrophied. You can tell a plant that is dead because it no longer bears any fruit. You can see that they are spiritually dead because they are not bearing spiritual fruit and not living the life for which God has called them. Do you remember the terrifying words of the Lord Jesus? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name perform miracles? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Because, Jesus says, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom. People will seem like they're spiritually alive, that they're in church, that they're... but the fact that they don't do the things God wants them to do, his will, shows that they're actually spiritually dead. If the general vibe of someone's life is that they really just live how they want to and go their own way and are not that concerned with what God wants of them, very dangerous. Because the person who truly trusts Jesus as their Lord and Saviour will go on day by day seeking to trust him more and more, which means obey him more and more, which will produce fruit, a life of good deeds, of loving service, of deeds brought to completion, a life of more and more doing what God wants them to do. Not perfectly. 
will fail in many ways, but turning back to the Lord, seeking his forgiveness, pressing on, growing in fruitfulness that flows from a connection to Jesus, our Saviour. It'll look like growing in a love for God's word. It'll look like growing in prayerfulness, growing in a desire to serve and honour our Lord. It'll look like growing in kingdom-mindedness and kingdom-heartedness so we care about his kingdom and his cause more than we care about our little kingdoms and our little causes. It'll look like sacrifice for the Lord, growing in holiness, putting sin to death, growing in Christ-like character. I know a guy, I know this guy very well, and he always seemed like an awesome Christian guy. In fact, that's exactly how I used to describe him to others. Man, this guy is a top-shelf Christian guy, serious Christian, leader in his church community, godly character. But under the surface, and it's always hard to know what's actually going under the surface, so you have to take all this with a grain of salt, but I think what was going under the surface for him was this. While the things that God wanted of him aligned with what he wanted for himself, it all looked great. His life just moved in the same direction that God would have for him. While the things that he wanted to have and wanted to enjoy and wanted to experience just aligned with the life that God prescribed for him in the Bible, it was great because that's exactly what his life looked like, like he was living for God. But when what he wanted started to diverge from what God wanted, when the experiences he wanted to have and the things that he wanted to do and the life that he wanted to live started to diverge from what God would have him do, as shown in the Bible, he started to choose that way and that way and that way and that way. And I think that was what was always in his heart, but his desires changed and so he deviated slowly but surely from God and the gap widened between living God's way and his way until he'd let go of God altogether. Turned his back on Jesus and in the end said he didn't believe any of it was true, which is convenient because it matches up with just living the life I want to live. Increasingly, his deeds were unfinished in the sight of God. Less and less fruit, less and less obedience, less and less love and service of God's people until all that was left was spiritual death. And frighteningly, it's possible to be in church all your life, all your life, and to have a reputation amongst everyone else of being spiritually alive, but in reality, dead. Is that possibly you? If you hear this warning this morning and and there's not at least somewhere inside of you this little thing that says, is it me? Is it me? Lord, is it me? Perhaps you should be very concerned because when we're unconcerned about whether we're personally, spiritually alive, it's often the case that we're in real danger or not alive at all. Now, this is a heavy rebuke, isn't it? This is not spa Christianity. Jesus is saying, take your Christian life very, very seriously. Clang, clang, clang. Ring the alarm bell. Well, this heavy rebuke is followed by a serious warning. Another alarm immediately. There's a thin ray of hope for the church in Sardis. Even in the midst of one of the most condemning letters in this, uh, these letters in Revelation. So, uh, verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen what remains is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Wake up. There's still a possibility of turning this thing around if you'd only wake up. And though the church has been described as dead, here he says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Though the church of Sidus could be described, has been described as dead, in some sense there's still a faint pulse. There's still a breath, a wisp of breath just passing their lips. One last chance 
to get it to come back to the Lord Jesus. One last moment, get the crash cart, jolt them back to life. Jesus, in his grace and mercy, is giving them a final warning, an opportunity to repent. And the big call of Jesus to the church of Sardis is this. Wake up, or more literally, keep watch. Keep watch. They've been sleeping. They've been feeling secure in their position, and they've let their guards slip, and they've become slack as a church. Stop being vigilant. Stop guarding their Christian lives. Slipped into relaxation and complacency and ease and slip towards spiritual deadness, failing to bear fruit. Remember the history of Sardis? On one side, there was this nearly perpendicular wall that felt impenetrable. And so they either failed to place a guard or they placed a guard that was not as vigilant as they should have been. And the enemy climbed up that very wall and the city was lost twice, twice in the history of Sardis. Thought they were secure, failed to remain alert and watchful. It ended in disaster. The church in Sardis is doing exactly the same thing, thinking they're secure, failing to keep watch over their spiritual state, and unless they repent, it will end in eternal disaster. They've just been chilling in the spa so long, they've drifted off to sleep. Do you remember we did uh, Corinthians um, earlier in the year, and in Corinthians Paul says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. It's possible to feel, no, 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 the wall's secure. We don't need to watch death. My Christian life is okay. I don't need to be careful. Spiritual death. You know, the Puritans used to call their personal devotional times, you know, their Bible reading and prayer times, their quiet times, they used to call those the self-watch. The self-watch. There's something very healthy and good about that name, isn't there? A time to let the word of God so shine into your life that you reflect upon your Christian life and take stock. How is my Christian walk going? A self-watch. Have you set a self-watch over your Christian life? Have we set a church watch over our church? That's one of the key things that pastors are set aside to do. Church watch. But we all, in some measure, bear that responsibility as well, to keep watch over each other's spiritual state. So can I encourage you to set a guard over your Christian life, to keep watch, to remain vigilant, to not be complacent, to not think, I couldn't fall. You could. Don't be content with a reputation that others think you're going okay. No, no, no. What is the heart of reality? Are you going on bearing fruit in the Christian life? Set a guard over your Christian life. Remember the Wiggles? Wake up, Jeff! There's this one of the wiggles it was just prone to falling asleep all the time. I, I don't know what was going on for him. Was it that he was parting out late the night before? Was it he had narcolepsy? But on regular intervals, they'd call the audience to shout out, Wake up, Jeff! And he'd, he'd come back awake. Now, we all need an audience yelling into our life sometimes, Wake up, Graham! I need it. We need it. We need each other to remind each other, Wake up. Be vigilant. Keep serious in the Christian life. And we need that in our preaching and leading of our church. Wake up, everyone. Don't be complacent. And so Jesus says to the church of Sars, wake up. Strengthen what remains is about to die. There's this, there's this ember that can still be blown on, fed, fanned into flame until it's a roaring fire again. But it needs work. How? Verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast. And repent. 
Remember what you've received and heard, the message of the gospel. Hold it fast and repent. And when it says remember, it doesn't mean, oh, I forgot. What's the gospel again? Can you remind me what the gospel is? No, 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 no. It means remember in the sense of draw it to the center of your mind and your heart and your life. Let it be central to how you think and live. Remember. And hold it fast. This is the most precious thing we have, the message that Jesus saves us by his death for us if we receive him by faith. Don't let it go. Hold it fast. Keep your trust in the gospel of flame. Don't let go of Jesus. Remember the gospel. Hold it fast and repent, which basically means turn back. Keep turning your life back to God. Reorient your life. Turn your mind back to God. Turn your heart back to God. Turn your living back to God. You are going away from God. Repent. Turn back and go towards God and his ways once more. When I was uh, uh, on my pea plates, I was driving a car down in Sydney with a car full of mates. And we were lost. And so we're driving around fairly aimlessly through the city. And uh, it was cramped. There was lots of traffic. There were people, pedestrians, bikes. There was lots of one-way streets. It was super stressful. And then I turned onto another one-way street. But this one was a three-lane one-way street. It was awesome, spacious, no one else on the road around me. I could move from lane to lane. It was the first time in about 20 minutes I'd been feeling relaxed. And then just in the distance, I could see ahead of me, oh, there's some traffic coming up, three lanes full of traffic. Oh, they're moving. They're moving towards me. (laughs) And surely enough, the three lanes of traffic were driving swiftly towards me in my direction. I was driving down a three-lane, one-way street the wrong way. So what do you do? Well, I saw the danger coming towards me. I realised I'm the one going the wrong way and I chucked a Yui. That's repentance. (laughs) You see, the way you're heading is away from God and towards disaster. And you realise I'm the one going the wrong way. And so you do it a U-turn. I'm coming back to you, God. I'm going to go your way from now on. You're going to be my Lord and I'm going to live the way that you want me to. Jesus' call to the fruitless church attender is... Repent. Whether someone is totally spiritually dead, that is, they've never been truly a Christian at all, or whether someone is withering and dying, a Christian whose faith is shriveling up, the cure is the same. Hear the gospel and repent. Heed the gospel. Christ is Lord, the ruler of all things. Come back under his rule, and if you do, he has made a way for you to be forgiven because he died on the cross for you. So turn back to him and you will be totally forgiven. For the church of Sardis, there's this thin ray of hope, and there may be for you. Strengthen what remains is about to die, says the risen Lord Jesus, by letting the gospel again be central to you, by holding it fast, trusting it, by repenting and turning back to God and living under Jesus' rule again. But if Sardis doesn't, the end of verse 3. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, And you will not know at what time I come to you. Jesus says, if you don't wake up, I'll come and I'll come unexpectedly like a thief and I'll catch you unawares. Often this imagery is used to describe the end time return of Jesus when he comes fully and finally to end history and bring judgment. But I think here it may possibly mean something before the end of history. It might mean a judgment that will come upon this church in this age where the church is lost. But whatever form this judgment will take, if the thief comes and you're not ready, you'll lose everything. 
And so would the church of Sardis repent or they slip into spiritual death and the just condemnation of the one who holds all things in his mighty hand? Now again, a serious warning. Again, no spark Christianity here. Jesus calls us to repentance seriously. Clang, clang, clang the alarm bells. Well, the heavy rebuke and the serious warning is wonderfully followed by a hope-filled encouragement. An encouragement that is joyful and victorious, but also has a sense of seriousness about it. And so even here, there's a clanging of the bell. Have a look with me at verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. There's a few faithful. Be encouraged, you who are faithful. Because though many in the church of Sardis had a reputation for being alive but are dead, not not those few, not dead. Though many have been found by Jesus to have their deeds unfinished in the sight of God, not all have. Though many have soiled their clothes, not all have soiled their clothes. There are a few who are worthy. And the powerful description of those people is they have clean clothes. They've not soiled their clothes and become spiritually dirty have not compromised in their worship and obedience to God, have not been contaminated by the city in which they live and tainted by the world around. Not perfect people, but people who are consistently repenting of their sin, holding fast to the gospel, and going on in bearing fruit in the Christian life. And Jesus says, for these worthy ones, they'll walk with me. Just as I walked with my disciples while I was on earth, So these ones who are faithful will walk with me now in this life and then on into all eternity, an intimate relationship with their Lord, because they're worthy. And it doesn't mean worthy in the sense of they deserve their position as being God's children. No, no, that's entirely by grace, as we've looked at over the whole last term, entirely by grace, saved by what Christ has done alone. But they're worthy in the sense that they've withstood compromise, they've not taken for granted their position as God's children, but have gone on trusting Jesus and living the life for which Jesus has called them. They have sought to press on in obedience to Jesus and has lived as the children of God that they are. Think with me about marriage. What does it look like for the person who is pure and doesn't compromise but remains faithful to their spouse? Well, they don't flirt with others. They don't entertain in their mind the idea of another possible relationship. Instead, they build into their marriage. They spend time together. They talk together. They forgive. They seek to change when they've done wrong. A relationship of purity and faithfulness with a spouse looks something like that. Very similar in our spiritual life. We are to be those who are pure and do not compromise in our worship and obedience to God, but are faithful. Not flirting with the false gods of our world, the gods of sex and money and power and comfort Not entertaining sin in our mind as a possibility, but rather investing, building in our relationship with the Lord, listening to him in his word, speaking to him in prayer, asking for forgiveness when we do wrong, seeking to change, seeking a relationship of purity and faithfulness with our God. And in verse 5, Jesus says, you could all be like this. He gives a threefold promise for any who, like these few in Sardis, will remain on their guard who won't soil their clothes, who will be faithful to Jesus, believing the gospel, holding to the gospel, and pressing on repenting of sin and bearing fruit. And the threefold promise is dressed in white, victorious over the world, 
pure and clean in God's sight because of what Jesus' death has done for them, cleansing them, and dressed ready for heaven, dressed in white. Second part, Jesus will never blot out their name of that person from the book of life. To the person who overcomes, their salvation is absolutely secure, will never be blotted out of the book of life, eternal hope, unending. Third part, Jesus will acknowledge their name before his Father and his angels. Now, do you remember the words of Jesus in the Gospels? Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I'll disown before my Father in heaven. To be ashamed of Jesus in this age, to stand away from him and not want to be associated with him, Jesus will be ashamed of you for all eternity. To be too cool for Jesus in this age means God the Father and the angels will be too cool for you for all eternity. But to acknowledge Jesus in this age means that the Father and the Son, the Spirit, the angels will acknowledge you for all eternity. To the victorious one, Jesus, will acknowledge you in heaven forever and ever. The threefold promise of our eternal hope. Who is the victorious person who receives this again? Verse 2. Remember the gospel. Hold to it fast. Keep repenting of your sin and going on in bearing fruit. That's the victorious person. Just keep hanging on to Jesus trusting that his death saves you, repenting of your sin, and in his strength, trying to live the life that he wants you to live. Now, these are wonderful, hope-filled encouragements to those who hold on to Jesus. But even here, it's serious. These encouragements, these promises work because they, they promise that it's worth suffering now because of the glory and wonder that awaits. It's worth remaining faithful to Jesus and hanging to the gospel now, despite what it costs, because the future blessings are so great. Absolutely worth it. And so though these hope-filled encouragements are epic and wonderful and warm, they highlight again how serious it is if we don't remain faithful to Jesus and bear fruit. Once again, not spar Christianity. We've got a new year stretching out before us. Unless the Lord returns. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We have a new year stretching out before us. And if he doesn't return, how am I going to live this year? Like I'm chilling in a spa? Or like I'm keeping watch of a city under siege? Think of the church of Sardis. No real persecution. No real attacks from outside. They had it pretty good. And within, no real heresy. No real false teaching and problems within. They had it pretty good. No persecution, no heresy. And so what was their risk? Slackness. Complacency. Ease. Failure to keep watch. Failure to hold strongly to Jesus and the gospel and live a life bearing Christian fruit. And isn't that our risk too? (laughs) No persecution. Oh, a little bit. It's a bit harder than a decade ago, but not much persecution. No massive heresy, though we're always fighting false teaching that's floating around in the wider Christian world. What is our big danger? (laughs) Slackness, complacency, ease, rest, failure to keep watch and just letting good deeds and godly service and love of others dry up in our lives, loosening our grip on Jesus. And so verse 6, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just have a feel. You got ears? I've got ears. Hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. The risen Lord Jesus says to you through the Spirit, keep watch. 
set a guard over your Christian life in order to guard against slackness and complacency and becoming like the world or keep watch. Don't fall asleep. To apply this just a little bit more sharply, think with me about a few things that might lull us into spiritual sleep. Things we need to be watchful against. There's lots of places in the Bible we could go to uh, get some thoughts about this, but do you remember the parable of the sower? It's in a number of the Gospels. Uh, Luke 8's one of them. Uh, Jesus, in the parable of the sower, talks about the seed that falls amongst the thorns, and the seed grows up like a good plant. But alongside that good, good plant grow up thorny plants. And over time, the thorny plants take over the good plant and choke it out, and it dies. It's the person who looks like they're a real Christian, have put their trust in Jesus, are growing up, are serious in Christian things. But there are things in this life they let grow up alongside, and those things over time choke them out, and so they die. They give up following Jesus. What are the thorny plants that choke out the healthy Christian growth? What are the things that can take a Christian out of the race? What are the things that lull them to sleep so that they're lost? Well, Jesus says, and I think this is very insightful, Jesus says, life's worries, pleasures, and riches. Life's worries, pleasures, and riches. And don't you just think, yeah, yeah. When I think about the things that'll get me, it's all those things I'm worried about. It's all those things that I really want to indulge my pleasure in or are looking, trying to get that pleasure or uh, the, 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 the money that I wish I could have so I could... Uh, the things that tend to lull Christians to sleep, worries, riches, pleasures. And the more you're switched on and wide awake to your worries, riches, pleasures, the more sleepy you are when it comes to Jesus. The more focused and alert you are to your worries, your money and your pleasure the less focused you are on Jesus and alert to the dangers that could steal you away from him. Worries, riches and pleasures just have this um, lulling to sleep effect because they draw your focus and attention and so less focus and attention on the Lord Jesus and so we become groggy, sleepy, complacent when it comes to Christian things. Let me tell you, uh, finish by telling you about a uh, parenting fail of mine. One holiday we went to Sydney for a Sydney holiday. Megan's parents were away and so we just took over their house. Great way to have a cheap holiday. Uh, all accommodation sorted. And then you can do a bunch of fun things around Sydney. So we did a bunch of fun things. You, know, you go to the zoo or the aquarium or a bunch of places around the place. One of the places we went was um, Homebush Olympic Pool. Because uh, we had young kids at the time and the pool, super fun place to go. You know, or sort of a water park and slides and uh, all sorts of fun things to do. Our son Tim was about 15 months old at the time. And so we played for ages and then at the end we sort of jumped in the spa. Because while the pool was nice and warm, the spa, piping, beautiful. So as me, Megan, our three kids, Timmy, our youngest with us, just basking in the spa, basking in the spa, really enjoying it. It was beautiful, it was great. On the way home, Tim was super sleepy, slept most of the way, and you'd think, yeah, you know, he's a young kid, had a really active morning, and then when you got home in the car, I was like, hey, Tim, wake up, and he sort of wouldn't wake, he was really groggy, wake up. We took him inside, and he was just super sleepy, it was really hard to get him to wake up. Tim, Tim, it's not sleep time now, and then we put it together, it was the spa, we'd cooked him. <laughs> totally dehydrated him. He was so dehydrated, he was struggling even to keep awake. And we realised we realized this is actually quite a dangerous situation. So we spent the next couple of hours just trying to get fluid into him, keep him awake. He's fine. He's all okay. But there, there's a tip for you. Don't, don't cook your child. 
And you know, spas do that to adults as well. Just takes a lot longer. Happens over a longer period of time because we've just got much larger body mass. But have you ever noticed where you've been just basking in the spa for ages and ages and ages and then you get out and think, oh, I need a nana nap. (laughs) If you live a relaxed, chilling as a Christian type Christianity, a hot tub, a spa type Christianity, just focused on your worries and your money and your pleasures, you'll find eventually you fall asleep to Jesus. And if you fail to repent, be lost altogether. We have a new year stretching out before us, and so the question is, how am I going to live this year? And I'm going to live it like I'm chilling in a spa, or I'm going to live it like I'm keeping watch of a city under siege? This is not to say that life as a Christian is not joyful and full and rich and filled with troubles and problems, but it is to say it's a life that is not a game. It's a life in which we need to be serious. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we look to the year ahead, we do ask that you would enable us to live it as a year in which we are alert and watchful. A year in which we're careful to hold strongly to Jesus and the gospel, to repent of our sin, uh, to bear the fruit of the Christian life. Please protect us from relaxation and fruitlessness, from complacency and compromise, from unfaithfulness and impurity, from laziness and selfishness. Please, Father, enable us to take our Christian life seriously and to keep watch over it. And we ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. We have the chance right now to do those three things, to remember, hold fast and repent as we come to...